it's Imogen from Squarepeg. This is the Founder Stories podcast. There are fewer more widely distributed theories of psychology than that of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You've almost certainly seen it. It's a pyramid shape and it sets out according to Maslow the five levels of human need. At the top are self-fulfillment needs, in the middle are the psychological needs such as esteem and belonging and love. And at the bottom, the most foundational of all human needs, security and physiological, food, water, warmth and rest. And though there is debate over the legitimacy of the pyramid as a tool in assessing human progress, what is almost never called into question is the physiological requirements. Because in general, without them, the food, the air, the water, the warmth, the rest, we die. In the age of technology, where we can 3D print organs, order food for delivery from a watch, or take part in drone racing, it is astounding to me that one of the greatest systems underpinning human existence, that of agriculture, is still the least digitized of all major systems in the world. And this leads me to a simple question. Where does your avocado on toast come from? Collectively, the answer would probably be, oh, I'm not sure. When a commodity such as wheat is grown by a farmer, it passes through an incredibly complex supply chain of buyers and financiers, storage, transport, and processing facilities before it gets to you. In such a vast and important industry, it is astounding that underpinning multiple layers of transactions, both financial in the form of payment and physical in the form of grain, are handshake agreements often never documented, reams of paper contracts, handwritten receipts and hastily edited ownership documents. And this means that wild inefficiencies and missed opportunities proliferate. And this hurts everyone, but especially farmers. On today's episode, we're talking to Emma Weston, the founder and CEO at AgriDigital, a startup that is helping to track, manage and finance grains in the agricultural industry. We invested in Emma and her co-founders, Bob and Ben, back in 2018. And if I can sum up what you're about to hear, it is this intense empathy and focus on their users that I think will serve as inspiration for all founders that come after her. Meet Emma. My parents were really young when they had me. I think that was a really defining thing because They were 19 and 20 and still at university and my mum's mum had recently just had a baby. So I grew up as kind of the ninth child, if you like, in my mum's parents' household that just had a baby. My my grandmother was 36, I think, when I was born. So she just took me in as well, her first grandchild, but essentially her ninth child. And I was just kind of raised with the rest of them. My mum was the eldest, uh, so she was the eldest of age. So my childhood was really dominated by this really large family of brothers and one sister. They weren't my brothers and sister. They're actually my uncles and my aunt, but they felt like they were my brothers and my sister. And then four years later, my actual brother came along, Michael. And at that time, I guess my parents thought they're sufficiently grown up and they went and bought a house where they could actually house my brother and me. And so I sort of moved back home then. And that was like more of a traditional, you know, two parents, two kids growing up on the edges of Perth in the hills. It was a really nice childhood because it was big and busy and full of people. And 
it is different, you know, growing up with your grandparents as your parents. And, you know, because my parents were so young, they were still finishing uni. My mum had to change her career choice. And, you know, instead of becoming a lawyer, which is what she wanted to do, you know, go and teach because, you know, she needed to go and get a job and support me. Emma's family encouraged her to study hard and she had her heart set on law. So in terms of the decision for me to study law later on, I mean, when I was younger, of course, I thought I made that completely independently of my own volition. And now, you know, as a 40-year-old something many years down the track, it was probably completely driven by this knowledge that my mother hadn't got to have the career that she wanted to have. So I did an arts degree alongside my law degree, so a double degree, and majored in politics in my arts degree. I found that university was a means to an end for me. I probably didn't enjoy it for everything that it could have offered because I was so keen to get to work. I felt like I knew that it was really important to complete my studies, but a double degree with law is five years. That felt like forever. This is a kind of rare take on the university experience. Mostly I find that students indulge in the freedom of self-discovery and take obscure classes as part of their education. But Emma was restless. Lectures and tutorials seemed like a box-checking exercise. She didn't want to study. She wanted to work. When I went to university, I was 100% sure that I wanted to be a barrister. So I felt that it was even a bit boring that I had to go and do all of this work other than the fact that it was going to help me be a barrister, which is what I really, really wanted to be. And so it took me about one year of doing law to realise I didn't want to be a barrister. Although I'm quite comfortable speaking, I wasn't particularly good at making arguments in front of judges and some of the things that typically stand out, you know, for candidates who go down that barrister path. I wasn't particularly good at that and was much better at writing really reasoned essays and really thoughtful, persuasive arguments. So I decided that I would go more down the solicitor track. But then when I got a job as a solicitor and I worked in a quite a small firm in Victoria, it was the oldest firm in Victoria at the time, but it probably didn't take me very long at that firm before I realised I wasn't really cut out to be a solicitor either. And that was a real conundrum for me because five years at university, you suddenly rack up quite a lot of debt. And my parents had been really profoundly of the view that I had to be able to leave university with no debt. And so therefore, they paid all of my debt for me, which was, you know, tens of thousands of dollars. This generous gift of an education played on Emma's mind, even though within the first months, she was almost certain that working in the law wasn't for her. She didn't want to squander the opportunity that had been given to her. But the longer she stayed, the more components of the industry just grated on her. So I stayed at the law firm for a year and then really did come to the view that I wasn't cut out to be a lawyer, not because I wasn't good at it, but because I was really confused by the business model. I didn't understand why we charged out in units of time. I didn't understand why if I thought about something that meant I could charge a customer for six minutes because I'd sort of thought of them. I didn't understand why when we had templates for so many of the documents, we were charging our customers like we were drafting them for the first time. I felt really uncomfortable and also felt really far from the problems that we were trying to solve as a lawyer. And I just realised that I wanted to be much closer to the problem space. So fortuitously, uh, at the end of my first year, I was offered a job at the Australian Wheat Board as an in-house lawyer. And that seemed like the perfect compromise because I could still stay in the law 
which I thought was going to please my parents and um, give me an easier time of it. But I could move into a corporate where I'd be with the customer, I'd be working on the problems for the customer, offering direct solutions. And, you know, ultimately that led to my career in ag. That was the big move. It was not a great move from a legal perspective, but it introduced me to agriculture and to the grains industry, and I've never left it since. The Australian Wheat Board, or the AWB, was founded by the government in the 30s to regulate the wheat market after the excesses of the Great Depression. And Emma joined AWB at a pivotal moment in its life as it was just about to transition from a public to a private company. Emma describes joining AWB as full of aha moments, like realising so much of Australia's agricultural exports were monopolies, in stark contrast to the radical free trade mindset she had been surrounded by at university. But she says her biggest insight came from her own desire to really reach out and be close to her customers, in this case, farmers. So I somehow talked my legal superiors into letting me go out in the field. And this sounds so normal now, but back in the 90s, you're a lawyer, you got stuck in an office, you stayed in an office your whole life. You didn't go and see a customer, you didn't walk the floors, you didn't go out in the paddocks, you didn't talk to the customer about their problems and, you know, what their life was like. And I was really desperate to do that. And I wrote a a memo to the general counsel and asked for some funding out of our budget to support a road trip and I wanted to go on a road trip through country Victoria and meet farmers and we also had representatives out in the field and so I wanted to work with them basically and see how they did their job and I argued this on the basis of you know give me some money to do this to go on this road trip to hire a car to stay in a few country motels you know to buy a few hamburgers etc And for this, I will be able to write better contracts as a result of this because I'll really, really understand the customer and I'll be able to write a contract in their language and be able to understand the problems that they're really facing. So somehow I got that approved. Everybody thought it was crazy. And I I went on my first field trip and what blew my mind was I didn't realise how genuine our customer base was as farmers and the hardships of farming, the difficulties, the risks that they take on so that we can all have food, basically. I mean, that's that's what it comes down to. And I pretty much, not to romanticize it, but I did, I just fell in love with the bush. I fell in love with farmers and I just loved everything about it. And I just didn't want to go back into an office essentially and do what I was doing before. So eventually I left the legal area at AWB and I moved into the trading team and then worked across pretty much every area of the supply chain. But whenever I could, I just wanted to get out and be with a customer. And in the way that life does, Emma ended up meeting and marrying a farmer, Bob. And it was a relationship that took her from the suburbs in Melbourne to the farm near rural Dubbo. But the transition wasn't an easy one. You know, I I mean, even though I loved it and I was ready for it and I wanted it, I didn't realise, you know, how difficult things could be living on the farm. That was really interesting to grow up and to, to be pregnant and to, you know, raise a young child out on the farm. When I actually had Tilda, we were in a drought and it was a really, really tough time. So she actually was what is known as a drought baby. Um, so they're, they're babies that have just never seen rain. And, you know, they grow up reading about rain in books and they uh, watch it on TV, but they don't, they've never really felt it themselves. And when she was about two and a half, it started raining one day. So I took her outside because it was, you know, just it was amazing to experience the rain and it was a very exciting moment. 
and she was running around and it was raining so much that puddles started forming. And I always remember her saying to me, you know, what's that? What's that? And I realised that she didn't know what a puddle was. She'd never seen a puddle. I don't think we'd ever mentioned the word puddle because it had never rained. So, um, you know, it was a really different way to bring up kids and a really different set of experiences and definitely not easy. You know, I mean, I think that's what's given me a really good appreciation for our customers and what drives a lot of what we do now. You know, I'm desperate to make farmers' lives easier and to make everything as easy as possible about farming and about agriculture and, you know, the supply chain in particular, because it's not easy and it's complex and it's risky. And, you know, we don't understand the majority of us who benefit from production-oriented industries and supply chains don't understand how, how difficult, complex, risky and expensive it can be. When I heard this story, I found myself completely awash with empathy and compassion for the thousands of families who work the land in Australia. One of my best friends and her family live and work a farm in New South Wales. And last year during the drought, they hand-fed their cattle for months. And when the drought broke, I remember her calling me to tell me it rained. And her joy was just palpable. And I hope you hear too how genuine Emma's resolve is to find solutions that make farmers' lives easier. Because not only is farming risky and exhausting, it's full of technical and financial complexity, which Emma also experienced firsthand. A big moment for me was another drought we had been in and we had actually lost our crop, you know, for for a couple of years. Finally, the drought broke. We had a really great crop. We had a whole lot of chickpeas in and because there was actually a drought in the subcontinent at the time, the prices for chickpeas had gone through the roof. And so it was really exciting for us because we were like, great, you know, we're finally going to get a good crop and we're going to get great prices for this crop. And then what happened is that the subcontinent buyers started coming to Australia to source their chickpeas because they obviously couldn't do that back in India, Pakistan and Bangladesh. And we're offering really high prices for those chickpeas. And given that we hadn't had an income for two or three years, it was something that we really wanted to do. We wanted to obviously sell those chickpeas at the highest price we could. That makes sense. Anyone would want to do the same. The problem was that in farming, you don't get paid for what you deliver when you deliver it. And so, you know, we had to be able to trust these buyers. We'd had to give them our chickpeas. We'd had to trust that they would pay us and they would pay us everything that they said they would on the time that they said they would because that would be our whole income for the year. And, you know, the reality is that doesn't always happen in agriculture and in farming. And, you know, it's really that story in particular of having to turn away the best price to go and sell to a different buyer who we thought we could trust, you know, was really the genesis for AgriDigital, actually, that moment where we're just like, this is, this is ridiculous. You have buyers in the market. You don't know if you can trust them or not. You don't know if you're going to get paid as a farmer. And yet we are expected to grow the crop and foot all the bills for growing the crops. Let me just reiterate that last point because it's fundamental to understanding the supply chain. Farmers often don't get paid the moment they hand over their crops, which means the trusted buyers are particularly important. Emma and Bob did get paid for the chickpeas, but at a much lower price than their best offer because they needed that security of a trusted buyer. And as Emma explains more about the farming trade process, it becomes clear just how insecure the process can be. So I think when we think about supply chains, it's really easy to think that everything's very mechanical and it works quite nicely and works like clockwork. And in the best of all circumstances, it does. But if you break it down to its basics, really what's happening is a farmer is growing something. If it's grain or livestock or a tree crop, it takes a long time to get produce to come to go to market. 
In the case of grain, it's a, it's a one time a year event. So the farmer actually plants their crop. You know, in Australia, they plant their crop in April, for example, they harvest the grain in November, say, and it gets delivered to market and into the supply chain over that November, December and, you know, few months period. So effectively what a farmer is doing is, you know, putting all of the outlay throughout the year, all of the cost into their production, farming and looking after that production, then harvesting it and delivering it into the supply chain and getting paid anywhere from Back when, you know, I started farming, farmers were getting paid 30, 60 days from the time of delivery, and a lot can go wrong in 30 or 60 days. So once the grain's actually in a silo or it's being delivered to the buyer, then the farmer basically sits and waits and hopes that they get paid. And nine times out of 10, more than that, they do. So, you know, maybe 99 times out of 100, there isn't a problem. But every so often there is a problem and someone in the supply chain becomes insolvent or is a bad actor. And, you know, the one who always wears it is the farmer because they're the unsecured creditor. And worse than that, the grain that they've delivered in, particularly if it's at a silo, has been commingled with every other farmer's grain in the area. So no one knows whose grain is which. And in fact, the grain is treated as if it is owned by the site operator or by the trader who is storing at that site. And so when a liquidation happens, the liquidator comes in, seizes the assets, obviously sells the assets off at the highest price that they can, and then returns the proceeds or what is left to the secured creditor, which usually is the bank. And so it's always the unsecured creditors who go without. And traditionally, that's been the farmers. And when a farmer goes without, it can affect their entire community. Emma started AgriDigital in 2015 after what she calls a particularly bad year. In 2014, just in for wheat farmers alone across Victoria and New South Wales, there'd been $100 million worth of insolvencies where grain growers hadn't got paid for their grain. And it's not just the fact that the farmer hasn't got paid, but for every farmer that doesn't get paid, there's a whole community that isn't getting that money going back into the rural community. And there's been a study that the uh, Victorian Farmers Federation did, which they estimated that for every dollar that a farmer doesn't get paid, it costs the rural community that they live in $2.50 because that's the impact of that farmer's dollar in that community. So that's really what prompted us at AgriDigital to come together, Bob, Ben and I, and say, look, enough is enough. We're going to build out a platform which digitises supply chains, which means that we have transaction security. It means we have asset transparency to the underlying commodity. It means we can have payment security. It means that we can build financial products on top of that platform so that we can contribute to the growth of the industry. It means that small to medium enterprise will have an accessible, affordable technology to digitise their operations and keep up with the multinationals. And that's good for consumers because then we have a really competitive food system. And that's what we want as consumers. Emma's co-founders, Bob McKay and Ben Reed were veterans of the grains and ag industry. Meet Bob. I first met Bob when I was working at AWB. So he was also working at AWB and I was actually a lawyer at the time and was working on a legal case and was referred to Bob as being the expert in the grains industry who would be able to provide me all the knowledge that I needed to win my legal case. So I immediately thought of someone who was balding, grey, probably a bit grizzled around the edges, you know, he'd been around for a long time. But universally, everybody who I asked kept referring me to Bob McKay. You need to speak to Bob McKay. He knows, he knows everything about grain. He knows everything about the problem that you're trying to solve. So I was 
quite impressed by this. And, um, and then ultimately, Bob and I ended up working together. I don't know how well known it is, but we ended up getting married as well. So I was quite impressed by all accounts. Emma joined Bob's business, Ag Farm, which kind of invented grain broking in Australia, which they grew into a nationally successful business. And that's how they met Ben. As part of that, back in 2004, we employed a young trader called Ben Reed. You know, I guess the rest is history in some ways, but Ben joined our team. He became an employee shareholder, you know, did well as well when we sold out of Ag Farm. And then we just went our separate ways for a couple of years. Um, ben went back to his farm in Young, uh, which is where he still lives now, actually and built up his farm. Um, He also assisted his wife, who had started an organic food delivery business for rural and regional New South Wales, which has been really successful. Gathered Green, it's a little plug for the Gathered Green. And so he went back and we all just went our separate ways and and did different things. But then when we had sold out completely a bag farm, I think we just had a dinner where we just like, let's catch up, you know, for old times and and as you do. And, And then we started talking about the fact that you know, here we are 10 years on from where we first met and we've still got the same problems happening in the supply chain as when we first met 10 years ago. And this is just ridiculous, basically. So we started thinking about, as you do over a few wines and over dinner, how would we solve these problems? And so before we knew it, um, this had become a bit of an obsession for the three of us. And, And all of a sudden, I think we just found ourselves working on this and then deciding, look, we're going to do something about this. And the more that we, we looked at the problem, we realised it wasn't just an Australian problem, it was a global problem. And so I think that was what also really inspired us. We knew that we could build out a solution that was scalable globally. And with the decision made to build software that helped farmers transact grain in a transparent and trusted way, they hired a developer and named the company Full Profile. And incidentally, full profile means, it it sounds like a funny name, I guess, but it actually means and refers to the great feeling that a farmer gets when they have a full moisture profile. So that basically means that they've got a full uh, full allowance of moisture to grow a crop. That means they're going to be able to pay off the mortgage, pay down the overdraft, probably pay the school fees and go on a holiday. So it's a really, a really good feeling when you've got a full profile. And that was what we felt, you know, at the time of, of starting the company. The team took a few months to figure out which of the co-founders would own which part of the business. Emma took on the CEO role, engaging with investors and media. Ben headed up sales, and Bob started working on building a supply chain finance offering. And with their initial product built, they got it into the willing hands of a farmer. So the first customer we actually had was, it's an amazing company with an amazing founder as well, uh, Fletcher uh, International Exports. It's the largest sheep meat exporter in Australia and a very large grain buyer and trader in their own right as well. They're based up in Dubbo and so they really became our primary beta customer and for a year they were just telling us everything that we did wrong, everything that, you know, no matter how deep our domain expertise was, there were still things that were not right in practice and, you know, that just didn't quite work the way that we intended them to work. And, you know, really Fletcher was the, the dedicated product tester in some ways and kept on telling us, you know, it's not quite right to commercialise yet. You've just got to build a little bit more, do a little bit more here. He provided us all this great feedback, but that has eventually led for us being able to commercialise the first iteration of the AgriDigital platform to around about 10 customers. And all those, those customers were grain buyers or traders or grain storage operators. And so that just gave us a really good foothold 
in New South Wales that we were then able to take to the broader market. But the strategy was unusual. To work for farmers most effectively, they had to take a holistic approach to the entire supply chain, which ultimately meant building first for storage operators in the grains industry. And the reason for that was just a really practical one, and that is that Selling to farmers is actually very hard and, you know, I would not advise early stage products to go into farmers' hands. You know, really what farmers are looking for is a much more well-defined product that offers value from day one. And we didn't feel we quite had that product there and we also didn't have the team to cover and have the footprint that would be needed to sell to farmers at the pricing point that farmers would pay for to get the business, you know, going So we thought, well, ultimately, we do want to bring the whole supply chain on. What is the way that we do that? And so we studied the supply chain and had a look at where are the points of commonality when the commodity moves through the supply chain. And we made a really practical, considered and strategic decision to go with traders and storage operators to give us that network effect. So effectively, what happened was every time we brought on a storage operator, we would bring on around about 200 farmers as part of that storage operators network. When we brought on a trader, there'd be another 100 farmers, for example, that would come on. And within a year to two years, what happened was we focused on New South Wales in Australia to begin with. All of a sudden, we had a number of farmers who were saying, oh, wow, I use AgriDigital at this site, you know, and with this buyer and with this site and, you know, this trader as well. And so we started to become part of the fabric of the supply chain and recognised as a technology provider to the supply chain. So that then enabled us to grow, you know, and scale quite quickly across a non-paying user group being a farmer at that time. And we basically ran all of our sales program to traders and to storage operators as enterprise sales with the view that we would then be building out a farmer application at some point down the track and that that would be completely digitally offered to farmers. But it's not always easy going in the ag industry. We've actually only had product in market for three years. And of those three years, unfortunately, two of those years were fairly major droughts or a drought across East Coast Australia. So it's definitely been challenging times. But those challenges have come at really crucial points in in the product development phase, which has, I think, enabled us to be able to go very lean and to be able to really focus in on the product as the way to generate sales rather than just focusing on marketing to generate sales. That's meant we've become quite product-led in the way that we have built out the business. And it's also meant that we have then focused on like what actually brings value in these lean times rather than just the, you know, the happy times or the frothy times when everything seems to be fantastic. So I think that's made us really quite focused over time. We started off with this very big vision. We've been able to kind of bring it in to now having a very focused view on the product and still having a really clear roadmap to achieving that to, to the, the eventual vision that we want to get to. So, you know, where we are now is we have the AgriDigital platform across Australia. It's one of the larger, you know, softwares in the grains industry now. So we're doing really well from that perspective. The original AgriDigital product allowed farmers, operators and supply chain participants to transact digitally, replacing the handwritten contracts that were often shoved into a glove box. And this was foundational because once everything was digitally recorded, you could accurately manage and track the flow of commodities, payments and data to offer finance at the precise point in the supply chain where it's required. It's what they've begun referring to as event-driven supply chain finance. Part of what we wanted to do at AgriDigital is 
instead of having all of those three flows operate completely independently and, you know, excuse the pun, in silos with each other, we wanted to bring them into one platform that could then be leveraged across our network of users. And so if we think about finance as an example, finance is provided primarily by banks at the moment to the uh, agricultural industry but quite unevenly. So there's actually a number of participants who are either self-financing or they're underfinanced or completely unfinanced, and that's actually limiting their growth. And you know, one of the ways in which finance is really obvious is that when a farmer sells grain to a buyer, the buyer usually doesn't have you know, cash on their balance sheet to actually go and purchase that grain. They need to go and borrow from a bank or from a financier in order to complete that purchase. What happens is, traditionally, in a bank sense, the bank will say, I'll give you money to pay that farmer, provided you own the grain that you're using that money to borrow for. And then, of course, the borrower says, but I don't own the grain because that's why I want to borrow the money because I want to buy the grain. And this is what actually brings risk into the supply chain is these types of arrangements. So, you know, what we wanted to do was to basically turn that on its head. And instead of the borrower saying, look, I need to have a line of credit that I can draw down or I need to have an overdraft that I'm just continuously drawing down on that is supported by physical assets such as, you know, my personal mortgage or my farm or whatever it may be. We actually wanted to use the commodity as collateral. And so whenever there is an event in the supply chain, such as a change of ownership or a trade that takes place, you know, the underlying commodity provides the security for financing that particular event. And ultimately, what we want our borrowers to be able to do is to come in through AgriDigital, through the platform, and be able to execute a trade, decide whether or not they need to finance that trade, if they need to finance that trade, be able to get that finance from us. And so we're kind of two years into that journey now from a finance perspective. We've learned uh, a lot on the way through. We've started at a relatively small scale and you know, now getting to the stage where certainly demand is outstripping our ability to supply. And it's very quickly evolved where our borrowers have very quickly identified themselves as either preferring to deal with AgriDigital versus a bank or wanting to use AgriDigital as their second preferred financier alongside a bank, which is great but uh, you know, it does force us to grow quite quickly. So I guess that's you know, the supply chain finance side, uh, which we call digital finance. And going forward, AgriDigital are continuing to build up their vision of enhancing the entire supply process. The latest and greatest news from the AgriDigital side of the fence at the moment is that we are finally launching our first product that's been purpose-built for farmers. So that's really exciting for us because we've built out a really large network of farmers over the past few years that have been using the product. We've been able to observe how they've been using the product, but haven't actually had a purpose-built product just for farmers. The team launched Waypath, the product for farmers 10 days ago. And while it's early days, the green shoots are definitely there. So that is an app that enables the farmer to bring the supply chain all the way into their paddock. So from the moment that they actually harvest grain, they can consider themselves part of the supply chain. They can effectively trace finance and trade that commodity all the way out of the paddock, but also they can manage that, that commodity all the way through their on-farm storage, trade out of their on-farm storage, and be able to effectively operate like a trader or an elevator in their own right. And you know, this is part of our vision at AgriDigital is to be able to take farmers into a position where they can safely start moving into the supply chain beyond the farm gate 
and therefore capture more value as a result of that participation, which we think is really exciting. So it's had some really good uptake already across the US, Canada and, and Australia. And uh, I think that'll be keeping us busy for the next year. That'll be our focus, I think. And just as every person in the world has had to manage the impact of COVID, for AgriDigital, the impacts have been significant. Over the past couple of years, we've really been focused on Australia, but have recently launched into North America as well, which is really exciting for us. And it's definitely the scale market for us. So in terms of just the the size and scope of North America, we're talking around about 12 and a half times the size of the Australian grains industry. So definitely a really large market. So we have spent probably the last 18 months on a really focused go-to-market strategy for North America, which has largely involved me living in the US and Canada getting really close to the customers, building out the network, making sure that we were able to hire a team and establish ourselves over there. Um, And then COVID happened. So, you know, that was a a really interesting one for us to have to handle. I mean, everybody has had to handle it, obviously, but we were literally on the brink of, you know, two really important things. One was actually our first office in the US. So actually establishing that office, bringing our team over, we were bringing some people over from Australia as well as hiring in the US. And we were about to kick off a fundraise as well. So almost couldn't have been, couldn't have been worse in some ways. So, you know, really quickly, I suppose we just had to gather ourselves as a company and, and come together. I came back to Australia in mid-March. We brought the team together really quickly and said, look, this is, this is the situation. And the reality is we don't know how long this is going to go for, but I think it's going to be quite some time that we need to change We're going to have to throw out the plan and come up with a new plan that is going to see us continue to build out the product the way that we had planned and make sure that we are financially secure so that we can, you know, keep moving forward. I explained to the team that we wouldn't be doing a fundraising as we thought and we were going to defer that to later in 2020. And we will indeed, you know, go forward with that fundraising. We'll kick that off probably in the next month or so, which is exciting for us, particularly on the back of having launched Waypath. The reason that I suppose I wanted to mention this was that it wasn't so much the fact that we had to throw the plan out. It was the fact that what occurred to me when we threw the plan out was that the plan had largely been built by me, by the board and by my co-founders. And what we put in its place was a plan that was built by everyone. You know, it was built by the whole team. So we decided really early on that we were going to keep everyone in their jobs and that part of the plan was that we needed to work out how to do that. So we shared that with the team. Everyone was obviously you know, keen to keep their jobs. But what it meant was that we all just worked together on, well, what would it take to do that? You know, what sacrifices do we need to make? What changes, what compromises do we need to make? And as a result, I think we've grown really, really close as a team. It was for the first time, I think it's a whole of company plan rather than the founders just setting the vision and setting the execution requirements. And, you know, as a company, we're better off and as a leader, I'm better off for it as well. So often our founders talk about the important components of building a team. And for AgriDigital, theirs is almost certainly unique. Just as Emma had set off in her car to visit farms as a lawyer, she insists on a farm-based experience for all of her team. In order to build the product and because we put customer experience at the front and centre of everything we do, it's all about the customer. And if we don't know the customer, if we can't put ourselves in the customer's shoes, if we you know, don't eat, breathe and sleep the customer's problems, then we're not going to build out the right product. And, you know, we saw that in the early days at AgriDigital where we were building a team, we were at hyperspeed essentially trying to get product to market 
But what it meant was that all of the domain expertise was actually sitting in the founders. And, you know, the founders can't scale that expertise as quickly as the team can scale their capability to build and deliver product. And so, you know, what we needed to do was take a step back and actually work with the team to build up that level of domain expertise. And so I think what's different about our approach is the way that we onboard employees, the way that everyone, everyone has to spend time with the customer. It doesn't matter who you are. And I'm not just talking about a five-minute phone call. I'm talking about going and standing on a Weybridge um, and watching grain come in. I'm talking about being there whilst chickpeas have been quality assessed. I'm talking about sitting in a truck and understanding what it's like to sit in a truck or sit on a header. Because until you have those experiences and you understand, you have designers then all of a sudden saying, man, those icons are way too small. Like, you know, or you can't see them because the sunlight's coming in and glinting in a particular way. And this app needs to be used in the field. And until, you know, you have that direct and really kind of visceral appreciation of what it's like to be the customer and the customer's problems, you don't make the best product. And we're not here just to make product. We're here to make the best product. The benefit of giving their team a visceral understanding of the problems their customers are facing means that their entire team has a shared understanding of what good looks like and feels emotionally connected to their customer, which can only be a good thing. After five years of building AgriDigital, Emma's own personal growth journey has been brilliant too, and I asked her to talk me through some of her key lessons. I think when we started AgriDigital, I was really 100% sure about everything that we were doing. And really comfortable that we we were on the right track. We were building a great product. What I've learned over the past five years, well, we've literally had bushfires, you know, a century crippling drought, um, and now you know, essentially a plague thrown at us as well. Is that in essence, if I don't have the trust and the comradeship of the team, then it's a very very lonely job. Even if you're right. And it's not all about being right. It's about doing this together. It's about us doing something that's really worthwhile doing as a company. And what I guess I've learned is that it's, it's more fun if I share it. It's also better. I mean, I, I do think I've got good ideas. I do think Ben and Bob are fantastic at what they do. But our team is even better than us. And now it's all about that. It's about building up the team that's better than us in many ways. And I really do see my job as really about resourcing and being there to make sure that the team has everything they need to do their job rather than trying to do the job myself. Over the years, Emma has raised millions of dollars to support AgriDigital's growth. And at various moments, I've seen her coach other founders on raising capital and engaging with investors. And universally, she's talked about the need for founders to interview investors. And I asked her to elaborate. I think when you're taking on investment as a startup, you really have to think about who you want on that journey with you. And that's more important than the money. I know it's easy to say when you've got the money in the bank, but, you know, we're just about to do a round, you know, we, we're going into that again. And it's, it's really, really important to make sure you have the right partners all the way along. What is really crucial is to be able to not just sell a vision because in some ways anyone can do that. It's really been able to, explain to the investor almost everything that could go wrong in executing that vision, but why you've got a plan to get around that. They want to see it solved and they're prepared to go on that journey with you. And, you know, that's, that's what I want from an investor. I want an investor who wants this problem solved, not just wants to be on the back of, you know, a successful startup because 
I think that almost any startup can offer that, but at AgriDigital, we think we offer something else. And as far as I'm concerned, the AgriDigital team really do. This is a big problem. It's real. And in success, the team's impact will be enormous. But as every founder knows, to summit the startup mountain requires determination and focus. In starting AgriDigital and the journey that we've gone down, it has been challenging. It's been challenging in terms of, you know, just what's been thrown at us, fires and floods and, you know, droughts and COVID. All of that's really challenging, but it's probably the the personal stuff that's the most challenging, I think, in growing out the business, or it has been for me anyway. We took the decision pretty early on that we were going to be heading to the US, and that was always in my mind that that was where we were going. But that really meant me going to the US. And, you know, that really uh, ended up meaning that I went to the US and I left my family behind. And that was the decision that we made that we thought was was best for our family. So um, I've got four kids. The youngest one is still at school and it, it has been hard to uh, make a decision that what's best for her is regularity and routine and being around her friendship group and her social group. And, you know, that's not where I'm at. So that's not something I can offer, unfortunately, in my lifestyle in, in terms of what we're doing with AgriDigital. And so we took the decision with her consent to, to send her to boarding school. So that's been a happy arrangement. And surprisingly, it's been happy for me as well because I know that she's, she's good and she's happy and she's really um, doing so well. But it wasn't something that I contemplated would happen when she was eight or nine years old when we started the company, that we wouldn't be growing up in the same household. Um, and that was part of the journey we'd be on. So that's, it, it is difficult, but I wouldn't change anything. It's definitely worth it. It's when customers say to you, you, you're doing a good thing. You, you know, if it wasn't for you guys, we, we would have had this particular problem. We would have lost a load. We wouldn't have got paid. We wouldn't have been able to bring on these new customers. We wouldn't have been able to expand into a new market. You know, that definitely makes it worthwhile. And the fact that we're able to do that now in Australia and in North America, you know, and we've got ambitions to go into South America and Europe as well, it makes me really determined to see that through. You know, I, I think my personal journey is to continue on as CEO with the business until we're across those two geographies as well. I mean, and I think that will be the next kind of five to 10 years for us. So it's not an overnight success, that's for sure, but it's everything I've hoped for and more actually. I just thought it was fantastic. I really, really love what I do. That's it for our episode with Emma Weston from AgriDigital. To learn more about their product and watch videos from customers that'll make you nostalgic for the time when we could travel the countryside, go to agridigital.io. Next week on the podcast is Ashik Ahmed, the founder and CEO at Deputy. We'll see you there.